From Washington, I'm Bernie Cohn, and this is Talking Tax. We have a special episode today talking about the employee retention credit and some of the problems that's arisen with it. In a little while, you'll hear an interview with Jen McCabe, an accounting and finance consultant with the firm Armanino, who's seen firsthand how these problems have hurt small business and even M&A deals. But first, we're going to get into what's gone wrong with the Employee Retention Credit, or ERC. I'm here with reporter Lauren Vella, who's just come out with a big story on this. So, Lauren, first off, let's start at the beginning. Why was the ERC created in the first place, and what was it supposed to do? Sure. Um, I think that in the beginning, the employee retention credit was passed as part of the 2020 CARES Act under former President Trump um, with good intentions. At the time, there were so many closures because of government orders and lockdowns because of the pandemic and social distancing. And Congress passed this to encourage employers to maintain their employees on the payroll, specifically, you know, the mom and pop shops, small businesses. That was the original intention. It's a refundable credit. There are two ways you can qualify for it. One is a gross decline in receipts, or the business would have had to endure a full or partial suspension due to a government shutdown. Part of the CARES Act was also the PPP loans, which I think people are a little bit more familiar with and there's been a lot of fraud associated with those as well. Okay, so you mentioned PPP loans and all the fraud that's happened out of there. And sort of predictably, anytime you passed something hurriedly out of COVID, there was always going to be a downside. There was always going to be fraud. And in this case, the ERC actually turned up on the IRS list of dirty dozen tax scams. Talk about the kinds of things the IRS found to be happening with this. Sure. So the Dirty Dozen designation was actually fairly recent within the last couple of months. The IRS has been warning since last year that um, third-party bad actors have been preying on the little guys and small businesses to uh, apply for this credit and advertising that they could get tens of thousands or even millions of dollars back if they had um, difficulties due to shutdowns in the pandemic. The IRS has been adamant to say if these deals that are being advertised to you are too good to be true or they're uh, charging upfront contingency fees of 15 to 20 percent, they're most likely too good to be true and they are false. Unfortunately, these advertisements are everywhere. Um, I know you and I have talked about this a decent amount. Just searching employee retention credit, I now get so many YouTube ads and Spotify ads telling me, who a non-small business owner, I don't own a business at all, (laughs) that I can get tens of thousands of dollars back um, if I paid my employees during the pandemic. I hear them on talk radio, $26,000 for every employee you kept on the payroll. We guarantee you. Exactly. And I've spoken with practitioners who say that there is an online portal for some of these bad actors who advertise through the Internet. And it doesn't matter what criteria you put in as a, quote, small business owner, you automatically, by their terms, qualify for this credit. And it's a lot more nuanced than that. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. 
Uh, so now that we understand how the ERC came to be and how it's been abused, uh, let's get to the interview with Jen McCabe. I figured that the best place to start is telling us a little bit about your experience with the employer retention credit and how you came to know it so well. I came to know it because when COVID hit, I was voraciously reading all the legislation that was coming out. I, a long time ago, worked in Washington, D.C., and I have friends who worked there, and I was super curious about how the government was going to respond to the pandemic. And because I have hundreds of small business clients in my part of the firm, a lot of the government aid was specifically targeting small businesses. And then the ERC is just a paragraph below the PPP, and I looked at it early on and said, you know, they say you can't do both, but that doesn't make sense. They're going to they're gonna back away from that because you can do both as long as you don't use the same wages. And I said that out loud to people. And therefore, when it came true, everyone turned to me and said, you were right. Okay, now what? So I got involved in it early. Uh, the original intention was really, I thought, great. And you and I have talked recently about how that noble purpose has been bastardized because there wasn't, it was written in haste. The legislation was written in haste by a bipartisan group who were just trying to go as fast as they could and they failed to put guardrails up. Right. I mean, these are, to clarify, these are third party bad actors um, who don't really know the credit or at least we think that they don't really know the credit and they're telling small businesses who don't who might not be able to afford an accountant or a tax lawyer hey i think you you can grab tens of thousands worth uh, of wages back well they're making them feel like dummies it's not that they don't know it lauren um i think they know how to exploit it and what they've done is they've hired vast teams of salespeople and lists of, of clients, like they'll go to a state, uh, all the contractors in the state, and they'll just hit that entire industry, and then they'll claim to be industry experts. They have an amazing, I'm jealous of it, the sales process they have is like amazing, but they don't really have uh, accounting and legal experts on it. They're, they're just right. selling it like hotcakes too. So with this wide breadth of issues and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of folks claiming these credits, it's bound to spill into other aspects of tax. It's bound to. And one of the things that we've talked about before is the way that this is affecting mergers and acquisitions. What issues with the ERC are you seeing in the mergers and acquisitions space. And if you'd like, we can split that up into buy side and sell side. Let's start off with that. Um, well, we, we should split it buy side and sell side and also timing, okay? What's, you know, businesses are constantly buying and selling. And so in the simplest example, let's say it's uh, you have a client today and they merged with one other client in the year 2021, right in the middle of the ERC and the pandemic. The way the ERC works, you have to combine those entities, even though they weren't combined in 2019 and 2020, in determining if there's ERC available to them in 21. 
And so you have to go back and use the paperwork you got in diligence and create lookbacks and revenue comparisons. So you're comparing apples to apples. Now what happens, of course, when you do deals, there's diligence. So it's all about diligence and making sure you don't overpay or underpay or, or sell yourself at less than you're worth. They may have ERC money. So they've got federal money. And because the IRS has been so slow to pay it, there's all kinds of problems on the buy side that buyers don't always know to look for. For example, the big one, were they really eligible? Or were they sold a ton of bricks and they don't know it? If the client was not eligible, they need to make sure that in the reps and warranties, they're figuring out who's gonna be on the hook for this thing if the IRS takes it away. Let's move on to sell side. What issues have you seen sell side um, that, are, that are coming up? Where they don't have audited financials and they haven't reported it correctly. And it needs to be constantly discussed. It needs to be constantly taken out. Or if it's left in, it needs to be part of the legal disclosures and the documents. Who's going to take this thing on? Who's responsible for uh, paying tax on it? Who's responsible for the audit risk? Because there's a very high likelihood that these things are getting audited. Um, and, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of audit activity starting up now. In other words, it could be a huge liability. It could for a seller. It could, especially if they weren't eligible. I mean, if I was a seller, like I said, I'd probably want to have someone review my financials. I would want someone to look at my eligibility and make sure I've documented it so well that I could give it to the buyer, I could give it to an IRS auditor. But a lot of the people doing this work say, oh, hey, if you're ever audited by the IRS, we'll help you then. But when you're a seller, you're being audited now. You need the support now. And so those very expensive agreements, some of these contingency fee agreements are super expensive and they won't support you in an M&A situation. Mm -hmm. I've heard practitioners, M&A practitioners, tell me the longer that a deal drags on, the more problematic it becomes. And that could potentially lead to things falling through. And that's a general statement for a lot of merger and acquisition deals. How has this particular issue added to the time? Can you give us a time frame of how this is prolonged? deals? Oh, yeah. Depending on how they qualified. Say they qualified for the employee retention credit because they had a dramatic fall off in gross revenue. That's only a couple days. They have to get on it and get the documentation together. So say it's a week. If they qualified using someone who didn't provide good support or they've tried to go on, I was shut down by the government and they live in a state where there weren't very many government orders, for example that could take more like a month. And in this day, a month, you know, lately with the interest rates going up and stuff can affect your valuation. Are there um, different kinds of small businesses in particular, any kind of particular industry who are, are particularly vulnerable to making false or faulty claims? Yeah, if you are in a jurisdiction where the, the politics were such that the leaders were very aggressively opening 
the economy and you know making political hay out of that it's pretty hard to argue that you were shut down by a government order right texas is the one that i'm stumbling on because i think it's uh march 10th to 15th something like that of 21 the governor quite aggressively issued a proclamation that was get open he he almost ordered businesses back to their chairs he wanted his economy to get revved up so when i see someone from texas claiming uh, a, a retention credit in the third quarter of 21 i my eyebrows go up through my bangs like really <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so can we maybe then talk about where practitioners are now in, in this space um i know that the last time we talked you said a lot of the time practitioners are often not well versed in the employee retention credit it's quite a difficult and nuanced thing to qualify for because the criteria is nuanced and then you have the timing aspect of it and the the rules change based on the timing aspect are lawyers that you consult with and accountants that you consult with aware of this and are PE and private equity and venture capital firms now well aware that this is an issue? I don't, I don't think people understand how badly it's been abused. I think that employers have been warned three times at least openly by the IRS um, they've been told, you know, you got to avoid this aggressive marketing and people who promise you the moon. And um, they've even on their website, it says you should be really nervous about a contingency fee agreement because this is a tax refund. If someone's charging you a percent of your tax refund, their incentive is to make you go get some money you might not be eligible for. It's pretty simple. Instead, what's happening is they see ads on television. I don't think people know. I think tax professionals and audit professionals are only just now getting it because their clients are getting the money this year and their clients failed to tell them that they applied uh, for a 941 refund last year. Their clients didn't know they were supposed to tell because it was taxable the minute they filed their 941 revisions. Most taxpayers didn't know that. They, they thought, why would I do that? I'm going to wait till I get the money to tell my tax person. So I think the accounting profession is more aware of it in 2023 than they were in 21. They know they need subject matter expert help in most cases. Some people still oversimplify it at, you know, I, I, I even am guilty of that. Try, try, try to simplify it for people as much as I can. Gosh, I, I hope some people listen and read and, and have access to good support. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's an equity issue as well. It is. This is supposed to help the small businesses that the hair salon operator, you know, in a strip mall. It's supposed to help those people who are least likely to know it's there to begin with and then most likely to get sucked into a really bad situation. That was Jen McCabe, a partner at the firm Armamino, speaking with reporter Lauren Vella. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, BloombergTax.com. Again, that's BloombergTax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by David Schultz. Meg Shreve is our editor. The executive producer is Josh Block. And from Washington, I'm Bernie Cohn. Thanks for listening. 
I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under Chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.